Hey, welcome to New City Church. Hey, it's uh, New Year's Eve Eve, but I'm told it's actually, according to Brian Herring, it's New Year's Eve Adam because Adam became before Eve. So I don't, I don't know. It's his joke. If it's a bad joke, blame him. Blame him for that. But uh, hopefully, all of you maybe are in the mode of starting maybe to think of New Year's resolutions. Uh, by the way, this isn't about my message here today, but uh, one thing that I've been done doing for about five years now, instead of making a New Year's resolution, I pick one word for the year. I take some time in prayer, and I seek the Lord. I say, Lord, what would be maybe that one word that you would want me to focus on this year? And uh, I'm here to announce that my, my one word for 2019 uh, is freedom, and I think this sermon is going to unleash some things probably where I'm going with that too. But uh, welcome to the city. Thank you all for coming. In your Weekly announcements here. I just want to point out one thing that is time sensitive too. Obviously, we're coming to the end of the calendar year, uh, and some of us, a lot of people, make year-end contributions too. And uh, we just want to make sure that all those are are put in the right place. Uh, those need to be postmarked by the end of tomorrow, and they need to be processed. All credit cards and online donations need to be processed. Uh, by the end of tomorrow. So uh, just one note. Uh, there's some other announcements, too, uh, for you guys in the weekly notes, uh, so please pay attention to that. Would you please all rise in, in honor of God's word as we read the scripture verse for today? This is from Galatians 5. I'm going to read verses 7 through 11. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will make no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. This is the word of God. You can be seated. So what offends you? If I asked you that question and we did a little survey here, what are some of the things that offend you? Now, obviously, you're going to have to spend some time like, well, what do you mean by offense? Well, I'm going to let you say that. But when we start looking at that, some of the things that come to mind, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm almost a native. I moved here when I was five years old. So I've pretty much known just all I've known is Denver, Colorado. So I grew up being a CU Buff fan, a Colorado Rockies fan once they came into existence. I was a Broncos fan for most part. So... I really am offended by the University of Nebraska Cornhusker football. Sorry, all right. I got two. I got two teams I usually root for: the CU Buffs and anyone's playing Nebraska. So sorry, that's just my bias here. I'm a North Carolina Tar Heel basketball fan. So anyone who's a blue, blue devil, I, I'm really sorry to hear that. I was a Chicago Bulls fan for a while, so obviously the Detroit Pistons, the Bad Boys, those were, those guys kind of offended me too. So and other things that offended me. I can't stand, I can't for the life of me understand why someone will cook a great steak to well done. Why would you, okay, thank you. All right, I'm done. Let's pray and we'll get, why would we do that? They're so good. It's almost like putting steak sauce on it. Don't, just eat it. It's so good. God created it that way, right? I am offended by people who cut me off in traffic and go 20 minutes under the speed limit when I'm in the fast lane, and I'm late to a meeting. That just offends me. I'm offended by Jar Jar Binks, for you Star Wars fans, the worst character ever created in all of film history. Some movies like Caddyshack 2, Tron, 
Annihilation, that movie we saw last. I mean, those were like offensive to me. I just so wasted times. I'm sorry, honey. Pickle beets. The smell of them, the taste of them, they're just kind of offensive to me. All right, we could go on and on and have some fun with this too. But if we look at our culture today, and you start looking at the word offense, and you start doing, it's kind of a scary exercise I did it this week. Start Googling what offends people. I'm telling you what, you won't, fa- you won't have a lack of research to look at. Some of the things, in fact, we are, it, it, as I was talking uh, before, the, before church, it might be easier just to list the things that people aren't offended by today than it would be just to list all the things they are offended by today. We are really hypersensitive in, this, in our culture today. In fact, I think if we really wanted to bring the Declaration of Independence up to speed to 2018, I think it said these are the inalienable rights, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, and the right not to be offended. It seems to be just a right that we're all been given. But in all seriousness, all human beings, whether we are faithful followers of Jesus Christ or hate God, we all know that there are some things that we all should be offended by. As much as people want to, want to debate whether there's absolute truth or not, there are some moral laws that I think even a hardened, most hardened atheist would agree. Things like sex trafficking, rape, murder, theft, adultery, abuse. I mean, we just need to turn on the news to find the, the evidence of that in our world today. And I think most people would come to agree and say, yes, there is much injustice in our world. Well, today, I'm going to focus in on this passage in Galatians 5. And this peculiar phrase, the offense of the cross. This really has, has, has jumped out to me. And in a way, it doesn't make sense. Because I thought the gospel is good news How is it supposed to offend? What does Paul mean when he's talking about the offense of the cross? So that's what we're going to talk about today. The offense of the cross. What is it? How it offends us? And the glorious way that how it frees us. Let's jump into this. What is it? So none of us like being offended, do we? That's what gets us up. Our Facebook posts go crazy. You want to see the veins come out in our neck and our skin turn red. Someone go ahead and offend us, right? For whatever reason, whether it's right or uh, if it's just or unjust, when we get offended, none of us like that, right? So why would he write this offense to the gospel? The context of what's happening here is in the book of Galatians. It's a, it's a book that Paul wrote to this area called Galatia that had a very heavy Jewish influence. And the Jewish people would have been very, uh, very well trained on all the rites, the rituals, the feasts, the festivals. You would always circumcise a young boy on the eighth day. You would have all the types of things that they were doing. And these, some of these Jews had come to faith in Christ and believed, yes, he is the promised Messiah. But what they had started to do to these, these young converts, these, these Gentile believers in that area, they started to say, yeah, you need to put faith in Christ, and it's, it's nothing you've earned. But now you've also got to do all these certain things to really keep your, keep your faith and, and, and keep being right with God. And that's really the context of what he's talking about here. People were adding to the gospel. So I have a question. Who would the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, who would that not be good news to? In Jesus' ministry, he generally had two groups of people that he spoke to. The first one were the titled sinners, prostitutes, and tax collectors. These would have been the societally obvious sinners, criminals, 
I mean, there was no doubt when you would go to a dinner party and you would talk about a tax collector or a sinner or a prostitute, you knew that they were outwardly sinning. They were immoral people. We would know that. But there was a second group of people in the crowds that Jesus drew. And these were the religious elite, the Pharisees, the very moral, law-abiding people. So let's turn that question to those two groups of people. The good news that Jesus Christ has made a way for sinners to be made right with God by trusting, by repenting, and believing in him. That first group of people, the sinners, the tax collectors, and the prostitutes, this would have been unbelievable news, incredible news, because they knew that they were sinful. And they knew that any talk of being right with God, they were far from God because of the way they were living their life. They probably had no hope. That would have been unbelievable good news. But that second group who really thought, well, they actually weren't all that bad. I mean, look at all the things that they did, right? They had memorized lots of scripture. They fasted. They prayed. I mean, they went to, they went to the temple and sacrificed. The message that anyone, the sinners, t- prostitutes, and tax collectors, and those who are coming from a Jewish heritage, all can be saved. That message was offensive to them. The word offensive in Greek is the word scandalon. And it means anything that causes us to stumble that trips us up. And ironically, that's the same word used in, in Romans 9.33, referring to the Jews. It actually refers to, to describe Jesus when they were referring to the Jews who did not pursue God by faith through, the, uh, through their works. It says they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. And it's interesting to note the offensive words and actions of Jesus' whole ministry, if you look at us as a whole. He was in the business of offending people. Jesus told the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector to illustrate the gospel. We had this outwardly religious elite person who would even brag in front of God. He would, he would do this religious prayer and say, God, I thank you that I'm not like people like this tax collector. Very, very proud, very well self-justified, almost saying, hey, look at me. Of course you love me, God, because look at me. And then that second person, that tax collector, who wouldn't even walk up all the way to the steps of the temple and just beat himself in his chest and said, woe is me, I'm a sinner, have mercy on me, God. That was an offensive message to those who thought they were right before God. He told us that we know the story of the Jesus approaching the woman at the well. Now, that was scandalous in, in, in just on the surface in two ways. One, that Jesus would even approach a woman like that. Because in the first century, women were looked at as a second-class citizen. Their testimony wouldn't have, wouldn't have applied in a court of law. And really, their purpose in life was just to serve the men in, in, a, in a large way. Just the fact that Jesus actually went to her and didn't make her come to him was, was scandalous. But the second part was she was a Samaritan, the sworn enemies of the people of God of Israel. Yet he went out and reached her. That's a scandalous thing that he did. That was offensive. In John chapter 6, Jesus' ministry was starting to grab some momentum. Large crowds were, were coming to see the show and kind of see what was going on. And he started to cut into the truth. And he said things like, I am the bread of life. I am the bread that came down from heaven. And in verse 66 of that chapter, he sa- it says, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Many of his disciples a disciple is a follower. Not, it didn't just say just general crowd. It says the disciples who've been following for a while, they depart at that point. Apparently, that message of, of God being the bread of life and the grace of God and the gospel, that was outrageous to them. Too outrageous for them to believe in. And even before Christ was born, we know the prophet Isaiah predicted this suffering Messiah, this suffering servant. 
In, in chapter 53, the famous verses, he says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. That would have been an outrageous thought. And it was outrageous. Because in the temple system, animals were sacrificed on behalf of people for their sins. But now this in Isaiah 53, it's actually describing a person. That would have never happened. It would have been scandalous for that to happen. It's an offensive. The concept of grace, this radical concept of grace through Jesus Christ, that our only hope could be made right to be made right with God, can only come as a gift from God. Not earned, not deserved, but received. It flies in the face of almost every other religious leader of Jesus' day. And some were so upset that they rallied together, made up some phony charges of him, had him arrested, had him beaten, and had him killed. Apparently they were extremely offended. But, you know, that was back then. That was biblical times. You know, that probably doesn't apply to us today, does it? Actually, it really does. It certainly does apply to us today. Let's talk about how it offends us today. First way that it offends us, it convicts us and it calls us out. And none of us enjoy this at all, of course. I remember growing up, uh, my dad would oftentimes listen to a radio show on public radio called the Prairie Home Companion. Garrison Keeler, if some of you may know, was, was the uh, was the narrator uh, of that show, and he had a he had a segment of the show every week that was the news from Lake Wobegon, and he would always close every week by by this uh, by this statement. Well, that's the news from Lake Wobegon, where all the women are strong, all the men are good looking, and all the children are above average. And in fact, later on, a psychologist actually took that and and, and coined the phrase the Lake Wobegon effect. He did some research that showed that actually only 2% of high school students believe they had below average leadership ability. I can't, average would be 50%, right? Those numbers just don't wash, right? The point is that we have a tendency to inflate our abilities, to inflate really how good we, may, we really are. If some of you remember back to the original Rocky, Rocky movie, he's, a, he's, he's talking to his girlfriend, Adrian, before the big fight with Apollo Creed, the champ. And she's saying, Rock, come on. This is, I mean, you're, you're the longest shot that's ever been. Why do you want to do this? Just, just give up. He says, no, I want to go. And I want to go the distance. You know why? I want to go the distance because when I'm done and the final bell rings and I'm standing there, I'll know I'm not a bum. Isn't that, isn't that a great description of really what the human condition really is? Aren't we all in so many ways, it's just kind of wired inside of all of us. We just want to prove to the world that we're just not a bomb. We're someone. We have something. It's wired inside of us. We're all, we're all searching for that. And because of that, and no one is exempt from this, whether you believe in Jesus or not, you can see this in all of our world. And because of that, we often try to default tendency to this self-justifying of ourselves. It comes out in a lot of different ways. Sometimes it comes out into the, uh, the resume guy, the, the me monster. Who just, you just, that person, that person, hopefully I'm not that person, hopefully you're not that person, right? But in that conversation where it just boomerangs, it keeps boomerang. Hey, did I tell you what I did? Hey, did I tell you what you did? You tell me about your vacation. I'll say, yeah, yeah, hey, we, got, guess we had a greater vacation, right? Right? Brian Regan, a, a comedian, has a really funny, funny bit on this me monster, he calls on this person. If some of you have ever seen it, it's, it's hilarious. And it's clean. Uh, 
And he talks about this person who just kid, oh, I did this, I did this. And he said, I made the mistake one day of telling a, a, a two-wisdom-tooth story. Because he's like, don't ever tell a two-wisdom-tooth story. Because there's always going to be someone with a four-wisdom-tooth story to overdo you. He says, I have a fantasy. One day of being at a dinner party with a me monster and actually being one of the 12 men that actually stepped on the moon. And be able to drop that one after that man gets blobbing about me, 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 me. I walked on the moon. <laughs> drop right there. We have that tendency to, to, hey, look at me, look at me, here's my resume. Another way we do this, too, is sometimes we just compare ourselves to others. Now, I come from athletics. That's just ingrained in who I am. I work for Fellowship of Christian Athletes. I mean, that's what I do every day. And it's just, I, I just can't get away from sports. It's who I am. And, man, my goodness, we've got a thing on the wall called a scoreboard that's always comparing two teams or two athletes against each other. I would say that... Athletics are not the only area of our, of our society that that happens. I think it's in business. I think it's in, I, I, don't, I can't find a place where we don't have this competitive mindset where I'm trying to self-justify myself. And maybe the phrase goes something like this. You know, I'm not perfect. I mean, no one's perfect. But at least I'm not like him. At least I don't do that, right? When we're trying to do that, we find the faults in others. It tries to puff us up and say, you know, listen, I'm not a bum. I'm actually I'm someone worthwhile. Sometimes this comes out in false humility. Now, the aw shucks guy, right? So, no, no. And we, what we're really good at is telling about people about how awful we really are, really in order to elicit a response from them. John, you're really not that bad. Come on, man. Right? Oh, good. I know I'm, not, I know I'm, I'm someone. I'm not a bum. There's even a religious version of this, too. We start bragging about all the spiritual things we've done. It was interesting because in verse 1 of this chapter 5 that we read today, Paul calls that a yoke of slavery. When you are bound to being right with God based on what you do, that's like a yoke of slavery. You have a, you have a, a master that is calling all your shots there. You're not free, free in Christ there. I had an experience a few years ago with a Jehovah's Witness who came to our door. And... Uh, I think I've learned, I think I've matured a little bit too when Mormons and, and uh, Jehovah's Witness come to my door. I used to just kind of shoot them, in the, you know, and I just, I feel like I just didn't have a heart to just try to love them a little bit more. So what I did with her, I said, hey, how about this? How about I, I let you know what I believe and you tell me, you know, where we may be off. And I told her, I said, you know, I believe that there is a God. I believe he created all of us. I believe that all of us are way, way fallen. I think we're enemies of God. We have this thing called sin. And there's no way that we can get our way out. But I'm thankful that he's provided a way by his son, Jesus Christ. He paid the penalty for me because I'm putting my trust in him only. That's made me right with God. I'm saved. And she said, well, what do you need to be saved from, John? I said, well, that's a really interesting question. I hope you understand the answer here. Ironically, I needed God to save me from God. It was God's wrath that was upon me. And we read that earlier in John 3, right? We were already condemned until Christ saved us, right? You should have seen the look on her face. I mean, the, the, the cartoon character jaw dropping to the ground, right? I mean, she was just, it was an offended kind of look on her face. Apparently, she obviously didn't understand the grace of God. But the, the thing is, that we know the Word of God is very, very, very clear on this. None of us are justified. We're not just okay. We're actually... In this Genesis 3 world, Genesis 3 is when the fall of uh, Adam and Eve and mankind happened. And since then, that's really the world we've been living in. We're the true no-hopers. We're born into this when we can't get ourselves out of this. The Bible even uses words that, no, we're not just sick. 
Ephesians 2, 1 says, and you were dead in your trespasses. We're not just sick. We are absolutely spiritually dead. We are not right with God in any way, shape, or form. There's nothing righteous in us. Romans 3 makes it very clear. None is uh, 3, 10 verses, uh, verses 10 through 12. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No one, not even one. Now, that's a big difference between a little sick, there's something a little bit wrong with me, to I got no hope, I got nothing. Now, coming to this realization, it's a simple concept, but it is certainly not easy. And it really is offensive to ourselves. Another way that the cross can offend us is it forgives the unforgivable. We love receiving mercy, but let's be honest, we're not so good at giving it. I mean, sure, we'll give mercy when we know there's something coming in return and when it doesn't cost us a whole lot. But what would happen for us to give mercy to someone who doesn't deserve it in the least bit for me? It's going to cost me greatly. I won't get anything in return. I would have to say most of us are not very good at that. One of the reasons for this is we tend to judge others by their actions, but we judge ourselves by our intentions, right? Oh, well, you might have thought I did that, but I really meant to. It's like, well... But we judge you by your actions, right? Sometimes we have that propensity too. Now, we know this in the story of Jonah. One of the greatest examples of this too. How deeply offended was Jonah to go to the other end of the world, the, the known world at that time, to avoid going to minister to the people of Nineveh? Because he knew what was going on. He understood that God wanted to bring the message of hope and reconciliation to the sworn enemies of his people, Israel. And he went to great lengths, and we know the whole story, how that, how that ended with the great fish and so forth like that. He was, it was utterly offensive to Jonah that God would rescue the Ninevites. When we have this mindset of having earned God's favor, even in the slightest bit, the seeds of bitterness have been planted. Now, remember the story of the prodigal sons? Most of us focus on the prodigal son, the, the wild young guy who went away and took his father's fortune and, and said, screw you, Dad, I'm going to go have this great Vegas vacation and, and waste all my, my father's worth on this in the most defiant way and went broke and was about to die. And as he was crawling back to his father, his father loved him so much and ran out to him and threw a feast for him and forgave him and made him right again. And that's a nice, cuddly, warm story right there, but that's, not the, that's only half the story because there was a second brother, right? An older brother who didn't go on that wild vacation. He actually stayed there and apparently took, kept, kept uh, the, the, the flock and, and the field and did all the stuff that his father earned. But did you see the bitterness that came out to him when his father forgave uh, the younger boy? I mean, it was, it, was, it was reprehensible to him. It was offensive to him that his father would forgive uh, that young, younger brother. Some of the most bitter people in the world are the ones who are unwilling to forgive others. To those that have an unforgiving heart, it's hard for them to trust in a God that forgives all, even those that have hurt them deeply. But as we read in Romans 5, verse 8, but God shows his love for us, and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't some good version of us that Christ died for. It wasn't you or me on our best day. It was John. It was all of us. It was the sinner that Christ died. He knows us. In fact, he knows us better than, he knows our sin better than we know ourselves. And yet that's who he died for. This highlights the radical nature of the gospel. 
which exposes any seeds of unforgiveness in our heart. It's offensive that he would forgive the unforgivable. Now, by definition, the grace of God is for those who don't deserve it, right? If it, if it was earned, it wouldn't be called grace or a gift. It would be called a reward. But it's called grace because it isn't earned. It isn't, uh, it isn't deserved. It's a simple concept, but this is not easy. Let's talk about how this offense of the gospel frees us. The good news is, yes, we have put Jesus on the cross, and we are the no-hopers, but boy, the gospel is glorious, and it is good news, and it does bring us freedom. I had a chance to lead a coach's Bible study a few years ago. We had, a, we had an older coach who really had never spent much time. I think he had done a little bit of church here and there, but he was intrigued by being with fellowship Christian athletes and it was kind of a requirement for him to help coach with a team. So he showed up faithfully and brought a Bible, and we cracked open that thing every week. And we started unpacking the, the, the gospel. And we, took, we turned to him and said, hey, coach, what do you think about that? And he paused. He kind of shook his head. He said, that's insane. That's insane. And I don't know if I could have put it better than that. It was raw. It was from the heart. It is kind of insane. It's insane that God would send his son to save his enemies. That blows me away because that is not who I am. I would love to tell you that I'm a great guy, that I would give anything for anyone, but I've got to be honest with you. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a selfish sinner inside. But what a God we have. What kind of love we have. That's insane. The truth of the matter is we need to be offended. Our pride needs to be crushed. Our self-justification needs to be erased in order for us to just even come to God. Really, the prerequisite for receiving God's grace is to know we need it. It's to know we need it. Look how positively, though, Paul uses this phrase, offense of the cross, in this verse 11. He was pleading with the believers in Galatia not to remove the offense of the cross in the stumbling block of the cross by adding to it. It should be a stumbling block is the, is the assumption here, too. If we have never been offended by the good news of Jesus Christ, then we haven't truly understood the gospel. If we have not been offended by the radical love of God demonstrated on the cross, then we haven't really understood God's grace. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to me. The 16th century reformer Robert Farrar uh, put it this way, Grace cannot prevail until our lifelong certainty that someone is keeping score has run out of steam and collapsed. How enslaving is it to have that scoreboard kind of mentality? That someone's always watching. It's almost like the Santa Claus God, right? He knows who's naughty. He knows who's nice. You better be on that nice list, right? That's not freedom. That's slavery. Maybe sometimes what we need to be offended by is our feeling offended by God for not giving us more what we think we deserve. Here's, what free, here's where freedom, true freedom lies. It's embracing the truth that I am so wicked that Jesus had to die. But yet I'm so loved that he gladly did it on my behalf. I am so wicked that Jesus had to die for me, yet I am so loved that he was glad to do it. That produces utter humility and confidence at the same time. Two things that I, I see in our world think that those are oil and water. Those two things cannot mix. Humility, either you're, hum, either you're humble or you're confident, but you can't be bold. But I'm telling you, in the gospel, we are. 
We are utterly humble, but we are utterly confident at the same time. This can have an effect, and there's nothing else that can have this effect on us. Let's think about times in your life that you have felt the most free. Maybe it was graduating high school, graduating college. Maybe some of you is when you retired. Maybe it was that moment that you finally paid off your credit card bills or your student loan debt. Whatever that moment was, you probably had some burden lifted from you, right? And that's the, the sense that Paul is talking about in Galatians 5.1 where he says, It was for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. But here's the thing. In all of those examples I just mentioned, we weren't just released from something. We're released to something. It, when we graduate high school, we're, we're, we're released from the, the rights and requirements of going to class and passing grades to, to get the piece of paper to maybe go. But it's, we're freed from that, but we go on to college probably or to a job. When we graduate college, we're freed from all the burdens that come from that, but we're freed to pursue a job, do something that that degree uh, enable us to do. When we, if you retired, maybe you were freed from having to work now, right? But you're being freed to pursue other interests like travel, spending time with your grandkids, and pickleball or something like that. I don't know. When you paid off your student loans or your credit card debts, you're now freed to invest your money in other areas. This is a biblical concept as well as just a life concept. First Peter 2.16 says this, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So what are we freed to? This is a purposeful freedom that God has freed us in Christ. First one is gospel-driven effort. There's a big, big, big difference in effort because I have to and effort because I get to. In verse 6 of chapter 5, he, taught, he uses the phrase, faith working through love. Book of James talks about faith that does not have works, that does not produce works in their life. It's a dead faith. It's really not faith at all. The gospel does produce a a gospel-driven effort in our lives, too. In verse 13 of chapter 5, he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Think of the prodigal son story again. Now, think think about the story. If you were that younger brother... And know that you had defied, defiled the Father in the, in the most horrific way. And yet you're sitting back, you've got a robe on, you've got jewelry on, you just got filled with the greatest filet mignon that you've ever had. And you're kind of pinching yourself like, I, 24 hours ago I was about to die in pig slop, and now I'm made right with Father, the greatest guy ever. And that Father came up to him and said, Hey, son, I've got some work tomorrow in the fields to do. Would you mind helping me? What do you think your response would be at that point? It wouldn't be a have to, would it? He just demonstrated at the greatest cost, in the greatest way, how much he loved for you. It would be a privilege and an honor to go ahead and work for that father. That's what we're talking about here. Second thing that it it frees us to, it frees us to serve others wholeheartedly. Legendary UCLA uh, basketball coach John Wooden had a great quote. It's amazing how much can be accomplished if no one cares who gets the credit. That's one of the things I love about team sports. Because i got to sacrifice for you, you got to sacrifice for me, and it's about we, not me. I think it teaches some great life lessons here. But if we're in competition to prove ourselves that we are not a bum, that I'm someone because I'm not as bad as you, 
Well, I'm really not free to truly serve people. It's always going to be a give to get. But now in the gospel, I'm free to give even if I don't get anything from it. There's a freedom in that too. Tim Keller says, you've never done anything out of love or freedom until you see you're a sinner saved by grace. Another thing it frees us to do is actually forgive others. As I better realize how much I've been forgiven, it becomes easier for me to forgive others. Ephesians 4.32 puts this very clearly. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. We have been modeled the greatest show of forgiveness. I'm not saying it'll ever be easy for us, but it will become easier as we grow as children of God and become more Christ-like through the gospel. One other thing it does frees us to is proper worship. What I mean by that is the fact that if you really think about it, every single human being worships something. We were made to worship God, but oftentimes we worship idols, these false gods. We're, and and, and a, a false god is one that we, something, something or someone that we find ultimate worth, that we, if without it, I don't know if we could even live. It puts our hearts in the proper place. It frees us to fully worship the one true God, not the false gods that promise, promise a bunch of things and never deliver. In Galatians 6, he, he concludes at the end of this uh, letter to the Galatians, but be far from it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. It's what we've been made for. So friends, I just pray today that you, we would all, let this cross offend us to free us to truly worship God. We're going to go to communion, and this is where we remember two basic things here. The offense of that cross. It was our sin that put him there. But it doesn't leave us there. What a great, loving, good God we have. Because that also reminds us of the freedom we have in him. He purchased it at the greatest cost we could not be possibly loved more right now, today, than we ever will be. Let us dwell on the offense and that freedom that comes with that. Let me pray for us. Lord, you are so, so good to us in so, so many ways. I just know that uh, I'm, just a, I'm just a limited, foolish man that thinks he knows a lot of things, thinks he knows what's right, and puts my worship in different places that it shouldn't be. But Lord, I thank you that you are a God that is slow to anger. You are abounding in steadfast love. You have never, ever quit on us. Lord, let this cross offend us like it needs to be. We all need this, and that's where true freedom can be found. And just dying to ourselves, repenting of who we've been, and putting our trust and faith in you, and living in that freedom. Father, as we look at turning the page on another year of our, our lives, I pray that freedom would be the mark of this church, the mark of everyone sitting here. That because of what Christ has done, we are those free people. Not free to serve ourselves, free to serve you and to serve others. In Jesus' name, amen.